0: Sit back in your seats, get something to eat Watch this movie Don't let the kids see it Because, well We'll
1: let you hear the Um, Thank you Can we talk about a good absurdity? Of course, it started out in the good I actually think this whole movie, I think the book I think it all was written, created Just to lead up to a shirtless Paul Newman That's it, I'm sorry (laughs) I mean, that's fair I mean, true story, I was like I texted Gabe and I started watching the movie I was like Is this actually like three and a half hours long? He's like, there's a shirtless Paul Newman coming up. I'm like, all right, bye.
2: (laughs) They know their audience. Paul Newman is probably the least bad thing about this movie. But his accent might be the worst thing. (laughs) (laughs) I think the variety of accents, not just by
3: Paul Newman, but by everyone in this film, is probably the most absurd thing.
2: You didn't appreciate that Ari ben Kanan has a very clearly American accent, even though he's supposed to have served in the British Army and grew up in Israel?
1: Mm-hmm. His accent's all over the place. It was hard to pin down.
2: Yeah,
3: there's a lot of, like, weird, internal... Well, now we might be getting into something too serious, but... Oh, come on, uh, I started
1: this with shirtless Paul Newman, <laughs> man. I gave you a softball. <laughs> We're done with the serious right. stuff. We'll get into this later. I mean, honestly, we can just end the episode here. It's all they need to That's know. about. They need to know. We can act it out. Sam, take your shirt off. What?
2: Welcome back to the Intervention Podcast. In previous entries in our Palestine, Zionism, and Empire series, we've detailed American Zionist interests, or lack thereof, and mandate Palestine. But we have, by and large, sidelined a focus on American Jewry after the state of Israel emerged. What better way to rectify this than by discussing Leon Uris' Zionist epic, Exodus, first released as a novel in 1958. The book, a runaway hit, became a film in 1960, directed by Otto Preminger written for the screen by Dalton Trumbo, and starring Paul Newman as Ari ben kanan Eva Marie Saint as Kitty Fremont, Jill Hayworth as Karen Hanson-Clement, and nominated for Best Supporting Actor, Sal Mineo as Dov Lando. My co-host will be Evan he from Left of the Projector. This will be the second or third entry, depending on how you're counting, into our collaborative History in Film series. We're joined by special guests, Gabe Christie, he him, and Sam, he him from Labor John podcast. How are you guys doing? I'm doing good. Lovely. Love the enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surviving it. You guys want to do a quick intro of uh, what you guys do over there on Labor John?
1: Do you want to give the standard spiel, Sam? Yes, I do, Gabe. Labor John is a podcast where we talk about the working class history of Philadelphia and the surrounding world, and it's co-hosted by me and my good friend, Gabe. That's the elevator pitch. So we uh, take
3: a kind of pop history approach, focusing on a variety of different strikes and labor actions across the like greater Philadelphia area and southeastern Pennsylvania, uh, sometimes recognizing that the states of Delaware and New Jersey exist, but rarely we can be found across all of the normal podcast platforms.
2: Highly recommend that everybody look into them. They've got a great flow and a great they do their research very well. That's all you, Gabe.
3: That's all newspapers.com, but
2: <laughs> Well somebody's gotta read those newspapers. Yeah. So avid listeners, you'll notice this is the very first intervention episode without either of my regular co-hosts, Nick or Steve. Unlike everyone here, they were unwilling to burn three and a half hours of their lives to join us to talk about this awful propaganda movie. And for that, I thank you all the more for joining us.
1: Damn, what, is that, what does that
2: say about us? Masochists.
1: We have no lives. Yeah.
2: I mean, we all uh, have our own podcast, so that's redundant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So before we get into the film, there are a few historical points I think need clarified for the sake of context. Through the 20th century, the United States, for all its notable currents of anti-Semitism, represented a society where Jewish people felt more able to participate as citizens. The rise of outright fascism in Europe thus encouraged thousands of Jewish Europeans to seek sanctuary on American shores. The MS St. Louis is an instructive and tragic story to this point. The boat set sail from Germany to the United States, carrying over 900 Jewish refugees. The United States, in the depths of depression-driven isolation policy, turned the masses away less than four months before the Nazi invasion of Poland. After the war, Jewish people liberated from death camps again sought American refuge. The United States and the other allied power, Great Britain, turned away thousands of Jewish immigrants. The political reasons they did so included anti-Semitism, but also general xenophobia and a resistance to absorb massive numbers of destitute refugees.
3: If I can throw in a labor angle very quickly, the Jewish Labor Committee did try to get 400,000 visas for refugees, but that basically got turned down specifically due to red baiting because there were, which gets into the movie a little bit later, Red baiting as part of anti-Semitism was a major factor in the refusal of allowing Jews into the states after the Shoah. That could be a whole episode in of itself, so we should keep going.
2: <laughs> Listen to them. It's definitely just worth noting that the Cold War started very early or never ended. Ooh. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. So all of this left Mandate Palestine as the other option for Jews who, understandably did not want to return to the lands of recent persecution. Great Britain, protectorate of the mandate, resisted the influx of Jews in a vain attempt to maintain order and calm between the Palestinian, Arab, and Jewish peoples. The Crown made contradictory promises of sovereignty earlier in the century, detailed in our episode on Mandate Palestine. A specific version of the struggle is portrayed in this movie. Another important context, not portrayed in this movie, but essential to understand the film as a piece of propaganda, is the relationship of American Jews to the state of Israel after the resolution of the first Arab-Israeli war. Zionist organizations in the United States, for reasons touched on in earlier episodes, supported the creation of the state of Israel as a refuge for persecuted Jews. American Jews, though not a monolith, Argued Judaism represented a mainstream Abrahamic religion, not a national identity. The aim being their loyalties lay with America and their religion in diaspora, not based in some other state in the Middle East.
4: When I was reading this before, this reminds me of which we just discussed on our other episode of Levi on Osborne, the whole thing is when I was younger in school, we always had the debate of like American Jew versus Jewish American. And I feel like that you don't need to go down that rabbit hole again, but it reminds me here of how the Americas, you know, Jews in the American diaspora sort of saw themselves because this makes it sound like the majority felt they had an identity towards America versus necessarily Judaism first.
2: Yeah. It's the idea that the diaspora is itself an identity and a history worth holding that has value. Right. The reform movement the largest Jewish movement in the United States, embraced further acculturation rather than the cultivation of a separate Jewish ethnic identity. In Pittsburgh, the birthplace of the reform movement, Temple Rodef Shalom went as far as moving the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday to make the religion more in line with Christianity. So rather than get lost in all this trivia, it's important to note the state of Israel's stated purpose as a homeland for all Jewish people Regardless of their practice, contradicted the American Reform Movement's stated purpose that America was home and Judaism was a religion. This conflict came to a head in the August 1950 meeting of the president of the American Jewish Committee, Jacob Blaustein, and Prime Minister David Ben Gurion. Blaustein rose to prominence after founding the mom and pop American Oil Company, better known today as Amoco. A few billion dollars later, and Blaustein emerged one of the most financially flush and outspoken American Jewish Zionists. The meeting and subsequent agreement between Blaustein and Ben-Gurion defined the post-statehood relationship between American Zionism and the state of Israel. This Blaustein-Ben-Gurion agreement of 1950 made explicit the position of Israel as a state which represented only the citizens within its own borders, not a representative of the collective Jew. The most oft-quoted portion of Ben-Gurion's segment of the agreement reads, The Jews of the United States, as a community and as individuals, have only one political attachment, and that is to the United States of America. They owe no political allegiance to Israel. In the first statement which the representative of Israel made before the United Nations after her admission to the international organization, he clearly stated, without any reservation, that the State of Israel represents and speaks only on behalf of its own citizens and in no way presumes to represent or speak in the name of the Jews who are citizens of any other country. We, the people of Israel, have no desire and no intention to interfere in any way with the internal affairs of Jewish communities abroad. Blaustein's reply is of equal blunt force in its statement that American Jews hold no political attachment to the state of Israel. Quote, American Jews vigorously repudiate any suggestion or implication that they are in exile. American Jews, young and old alike, Zionists and non-Zionists alike, are proudly attached to America. America welcomed their immigrant parents in their need. Under America's free institutions, they and their children have achieved that freedom and sense of security unknown for long centuries of travail. American Jews have truly become Americans, just as have all other oppressed groups that have ever come to America's shores. This agreement, signed by both parties, represented a significant concession from the state of Israel. Charles S. Lieben in his History of the Exchange argued, quote, "This is the only case in which Israeli leaders adopted a policy under diaspora pressure without any significant segment of the Israeli elite being sympathetic to that policy." Ben-Gurion knew he needed to keep American Zionists happy, said so keep sending checks to the state. He knew this statement encouraged American Jews to continue viewing Israel a little more than a massive refugee center. Any thoughts on all that? You guys heard of this Blaustein Agreement before? Gabe? I hadn't.
3: It's interesting because my focus on American Jewish history has always been the American Jewish left. And they had a much different conception of what Jewish identity in the U.S. was. And it was inextricably tied to class struggle because... A lot of it was like Bundist influence, so they had that concept of non-territorial nationalism in of creating a national identity, but doing so as part of the broader revolutionary movement of whatever country you were in. But then it's also worth noting that by 1950, and really almost immediately after World War II, the American Jewish left got decimated by HUAC. I think it was 20% of everyone caught up in HUAC was Jewish when 2% of the U.S. population was Jewish at the time. That's at least in part because there was a large Jewish representation in the Communist Party, but also Jewish communists got specifically targeted. So it's just interesting to see a much more assimilationist kind of idea. Because it's also worth noting that it was starting to die down in the 40s, but you were still seeing a lot of specifically Yiddish publications coming out of the Jewish left at the time. I think Jewish Currents, which had started in 46, and I think Jewish Life as well, which was another communist-aligned Jewish magazine, Uh, they were both publishing in English, but there were a lot of other ones, like the Morgan Freiheit was still in Yiddish, Freie Arbiterstimme, the... Anarchist one was still in Yiddish and the four Verts, which was at this point just New Deal Democrat, but they were still in Yiddish and were still cultivating a like distinctly separate Jewish identity within the American labor movement.
2: When did Jewish currents move towards supporting Zionism? Was it at the same time that the broad communist international was supporting the creation of the state of Israel? They
3: had like one dissenting piece right after the UN resolution then they were silent on it because at least the theory is that there was pressure from the party, right? but no one was willing to talk about it. And then, at least from my understanding of it, for basically the rest of the 20th century, they were almost silent on Palestine till the 2010s when they were somewhat pro-Israel. And then there was an internal shift and you have the current editorial board that has been very distinctly if not explicitly anti-zionist at least pro-palestinian liberation
2: they posted a huge my culpa basically going over their own history and sort of claiming that they are something new and dredged up all the articles that they regretted as a publication
3: yeah and there's uh some very interesting letters to the editor from it was like 2017 where their readers were explicitly saying like if you're not going to call this a genocide what the fuck are we doing here
2: They've done some great reporting over the last few months.
4: Yeah, I think, Levi, when you sent me, I don't know, a few months ago, something from a Jewish currents, my memory of it was that they weren't very supportive. And I thought like, oh, this seems interesting. And then I looked into it and I was very surprised to see that they had taken this turn. The uh, American Jewish left would not agree
2: that all other oppressed groups that have ever come to America's shores have been accepted with open arms and assimilation. Yeah. So this is not who this movie is made for. This is clearly made for <laughs> the broader American Jewish population
4: and Gentiles. It was made for me as a teen to be forced to watch. <laughs> and I, I actually have also read the book. Oh. Mm. I'm not sure if I wanted to admit that alive on this. <laughs> when I say I read the book, I probably read about 65% like skimming through bits. So only like 400 pages of it yeah it's like 750 pages but there's some articles that i saw that it referred to the book as sort of like the book that every jewish you know american jewish family has in their house like one of the primary texts you know probably more than even the bible
2: kind of creepy Yeah, it's a little weird my family did not have a copy of it but we had other Leon Uris books so i don't know that that's any better yeah my grandfather probably had a copy but i don't remember ever seeing it around our house according to joe biden Barack Obama was raised reading it. As a young man, he
0: grew
3: up learning about Israel from the stories of Leon Uris and Exodus.
2: That doesn't surprise me in the least. That's as good a segue as any. <laughs> so this conception of Israel as is full of poor, destitute Jews, which gained purchase in the minds of American Jews, encouraged Leon Uris to write his novel Exodus. Uris, at 18, signed up to serve in a U.S. Marine battalion in the South Pacific during World War II. His first novel, Battle Cry, fictionalized the complete devastation of his own battalion at the Battle of Saipan, which he only avoided because he contracted dengue fever. The novel and subsequent movie, which he also wrote, set a major precedent of his career. Loved by the public, despised by critics. Uris continued writing pulp novels and films featuring macho leading men damsels in distress, and plenty of violence, including the Greek resistance to German invasion in the 1955 novel and film Angry Hills, and the iconic 1957 Western Gunfight at the O.K. Corral. Sometime in this early portion of his career, New York public relations firm of Edward Gottlieb approached Yuris, born Jewish, though not practicing, to create, quote, a more sympathetic attitude towards Israel. Yuris himself contests the influence of Gottlieb, but numerous historians back up its validity. At first, Yuris gravitated towards writing a novelization of his uncle Aaron, who, unlike Leon's father, made his home in Mandate Palestine and participated in the first Arab-Israeli War. Yuris, after, by his own account, traveling quote, nearly fifty thousand miles over two years, collecting hundreds of interviews and reading. Every book on Israel he could find, published Exodus. I call bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I have a feeling he interviewed a total of zero Palestinians on any of this information and read no books on the Arab position. So you sought to reframe Israel not as a place of passive refugees, but rather as akin to the American mythos of rugged frontier individualism. The dust jacket description alone captures this quite well. Quote, Exodus is the picture of a people's dream to establish a homeland, to live in God-given freedom, to build cities, turn deserts into gardens, laugh and sing, worship in the ways of Abraham, love and be loved, far from the shadow of impression. It is the story of men in mortal struggle, and of men and women in love.
4: Funny, because how many times does the word God even come up in this movie? Like three? Mm.
2: We'll talk about that, but there's a very clear reason they're not mentioning religion. In at least two letters to his father in 1956 and 1957, according to historian Matthew M. Silver, and then in the first paperback print, Uris made blunt his desire to remake the idea of the Jew in American popular culture. Quote, all the cliche Jewish characters who have cluttered up American fiction, the clever businessman, the brilliant doctor, the sneaky lawyer, the sulking artist, all those good folk who spread their chapters hating themselves, the world, and all their aunts and uncles, all those steeped in self-pity, all those golden riders of the psychoanalyst couch, all those who have been where they rightfully belong, on the cutting room floor... I have shown the other side of the coin and written about my people who, against a lethargic world and with little else than courage, conquered unconquerable odds. Exodus is about fighting people, people who do not apologize, either for being born Jews or the right to live in human dignity. It has been a revelation to the readers, Jewish and Gentile alike. Eurus optioned the rights to the book, to MGM, while still completing the novel. The book's runaway success guaranteed the film's production. Uris wrote the initial screenplay, but director Otto Preminger rejected the draft as too long, aimless, and relying too heavily on anti-Arab and anti-British tropes. Preminger brought on Dalton Trumbo, blacklisted since 1946 for Communist Party sympathies, to rework the script. Though redrafted by a communist, and though Uris denigrated the final script the film still embodied Uris's narrative. As a concluding statement, there is no subtlety in either the book or the film. Both need to be understood as a piece of propaganda, as a specific fictional framing meant to model thought and action. Ben-Gurion himself in 1959 remarked, As a literary work, Exodus isn't much, but as a piece of propaganda it's the best thing ever written about Israel. Writing in 2001, Palestinian academic Edward Said concluded, quote, The most disturbing thing is that hardly any of the questioned Americans knew anything at all about the Palestinian story. Nothing about 1948. Nothing at all about Israel's illegal 34-year military occupation. The main narrative model that dominates American thinking still seems to be... Leon Uris is 1950. Uh, here, Saeed meant 1958, novel Exodus. But I hope we can break down and discuss what is this narrative? Why did Uris and Preminger craft their work the way they did? And what has changed, if anything, in how the American media presents the narrative of Israel's foundation and character? What this film lacks in subtlety, it makes up with in two dimensional characters. A flimsy plot and overwrought tension. So before we get into the more serious discussion, is there any particular
4: absurdity
2: in this movie you guys want to talk about?
4: I briefly mentioned this. So I was sort of forced to watch this movie when I was in high school. I mentioned in this previous episode just that I, you know, I went to a Jewish high school. I lived in Israel for a semester, and I believe some few months before we went, I was probably around 17, we were forced to watch this movie. And The only real memory I have aside from is this over? When will this be over? How long is this movie? was Ben Canaan does not look Jewish. At least like in my perception of watching the movie as like a teen. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's putting something in my head that I, I wasn't thinking at the time, given the discussions on it now, but I just have this vague memory of being like, this guy doesn't really seem like the person who should be playing him. It's just like an attractive actor who they got to play him.
1: You, I think you just answered your own question right there. It was just an attractive actor. They wanted someone to get the Gentiles in, you know? Yes. So, yes. It's I mean, have been that. Yeah.
3: but I think there's a lot of, like, internalized anti-Semitic depictions of Eastern European Jews versus almost every single good, like, Sabra Jew that gets shown and Sabra being a Jew born in Israel, is portrayed as, like, stereotypically handsome American, or Jordana is just, like, a normal Hollywood bombshell, as opposed to all of the Eastern European Jews that we're seeing, and all of the Holocaust survivors, who are always just shown as huddled masses. You see this a lot with early Zionist writing and early Zionist propaganda around it, that, like, Every Jew in diaspora was like weak and soft and whatnot, and then they'd go to Israel and become new strong Jews. But I think it's kind of repackaging that idea for the American audience so that Jews going to Israel are basically becoming the like white Christian archetype, mm. but they just happen to be
2: Jewish. And that's exactly what Uris was going for us. So we have a few clips to look at here.
0: My name is Catherine Fremont. I'm a nurse. You can call me Kitty. My name's Karen Hanson. Hansen? Oh, then your mother was Jewish. Yes, and my father.
2: So the next scene.
0: Oh, I don't care about the Jews one way or the other.
5: But they are troublemakers, aren't they? Oh, no question about it, sir. You get two of them together. You've got a debate on your hands. Three, you're putting out a revolution. <laughs>
0: Half of them are
5: communists anyway. There's the
0: other half pawnbookers. They look funny too. I can
5: spot one a mile away. Would you mind looking into my eye, sir? It feels like a cinder. Mm, certainly.
0: You know, a lot of them try to hide under gentile names. But one look at that face, you just know. With a little experience, you can even smell them out. Now, I'm sorry, but when I can't find a thing, must have been my imagination. Thanks.
2: Hmm. The important context of that scene, Paul Newman, all jokes aside, I believe his father actually was Jewish. Yeah. Ethnically. Mm-hmm. So there is some claim, at least to that scene, that he is looking into the eye of a Jewish person. As Gabe was saying, there's very clearly a desire to show the new Jew that this person's action oriented aren't going to be passive. They aren't the huddled masses. But why? Why is that the focus, Gabe? Gabe, we have to <laughs> we have to have to talk right now about who's doing what
1: on this program. That's a fair point. I'm going to talk about shirtless Paul Newman and that scene, which is actually my favorite scene from an entertainment standpoint. That is probably the only scene in the movie that I was actually looking forward to rewatching because <laughs> it was it was like a scene from an actual movie with the whole thing. It had a payoff and look into his eye, you know, asking him. if he sees a Jew and all. But Gabe, please answer this question for me.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's repackaging the concept of the Sabra Jew for the American audience, I think. And there's, to take it back to like the early 1900s, there were a variety of kind of ideas of how to remake Judaism. Some of them were Orthodoxy going into Uh, like orthodox judaism and dedicating yourself to the traditions and the laws then you had the like leftist side of it which was to kind of recreate a new jew as a proletarian revolutionary then the zionist idea was to recreate the new jew in the model of european nationalism and so part of the zionist project was to just always disparage any Jewish victimhood, or any anything to do with diaspora and the anti-Semitism that people faced there, and then that played two parts: one to like constantly remind Jews in the diaspora that you're not safe, you're weak. uh but if you want to be strong, come make Aliyah, and we'll give you a rifle, and you can go defend yourself. Then I think honestly. Almost the whole of this movie, in my opinion, is repackaging that idea specifically uh, and repackaging the idea of Jewish nationhood to present it to an American audience, to distinctly separate it from the other aspects of Jewish ethnic and Jewish national identity that would have been tied more to leftist movements and communism and also to like dirty Yiddish-speaking immigrants. That was a lot of how the anti-Semitic depictions of Jews were playing out in the U.S. Just another batch of dirty immigrants tied in with all of the old European anti-Semitism that got brought over.
2: The great irony of all of that is that image of the weak, huddled, dirty, conniving Jewish person, all those anti-Semitic stereotypes were the basis of the creation of the Zionist idea in Ben-Gurion's labor Zionism. You needed that stereotype to maintain in order to argue that you're creating something new, which is absurd on the face of it if we even take the life of Leon Uris himself. I mean, he was a soldier in the U.S. Marines like thousands of Jewish Americans were who served during World War II. That image is completely wholesale fabricated.
4: Mm-hmm. also brings in the use of Dove's character sort of as this underground fighting. I think you mentioned sort of the creating this new image of, of what you could do there, and it was almost having this, you know, the underground Jewish resistance fighting against the British. You see that as like, oh, yeah, like it's a good thing to fight the, the British. We should. The British shouldn't be colonizers, but they're using it for the gain of, Supporting this uh, image of, oh, you could come to Israel and fight and then you can do some cool underground terrorist in quotation marks, which another thing to discuss. Um, it, they use Dove as this because he survived the Holocaust. And so you're taking someone who was the quote unquote huddled masses surviving the horrors of the Holocaust, coming to Israel and basically becoming this newfound person who will use his, his knowledge for good.
2: Mm -hmm. To push this even further, it's not just the new Jew that's being portrayed. It's being portrayed in explicitly American terms. So a couple more clips here. So, Sam, you told me you're not the historian here, but could you tell me what extremely obscure piece of American history might this scene be referencing?
1: Hmm. American? Probably, I don't know, the crossing of the Delaware?
2: Close. So it's a bunch of people throwing British supplies into oh, the water. Oh, that would be okay. Yeah. Boston Tea Party. Winner gets a cigar. Fucking wicked. Why would this be such a central point in this movie? The fact that they're throwing things into the water, a massive, comically large Israeli flag is flying and Hatikva is playing. It's so on the nose. Yeah. When I described this scene to Nick and I had him watch it, he asked whether or not this can even be considered <laughs> yeah. a piece of art.
1: Me and Gabe were texting throughout this whole movie and he was like, where the fuck did they get a, a 40 by 40 royal, what did you say? A Navy Jack? Yeah, a naval, ensign. A naval Ensign. Like, who smuggled that on board the ship? <laughs> Seriously, right? How did that happen?
4: Amazon.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Amazon. What's the point? They're, they're, the whole thing was meant to be incognito. Why would they have this flag on them?
4: Yeah. Yeah, that smuggler, I can't remember the character's name, who they're, you know, using on Cyprus to get all the goods. Like, I don't think that was on his list of items, you know, to, uh, to bring. <laughs> yeah, on uh, the yeah.
2: checklist, the comically large flag of Israel. Just set.
1: Yeah. Another perfect scene, just saying that. That's fair. That was a good
2: scene. That was fun, at least. The movie is broken up into basically three movies. The first movie is about the boat and the hunger strike and the conflict going on there. The second movie is about the prison break. And then the third movie is this weird mess of a movie. I don't even know that there's a plot anymore about the creation of the state of Israel. But all of the best scenes come from the first movie.
1: Yeah, agreed. The end drag. Oh yeah, you never get off the boat. Absolutely goddamn right, unless you're going all the way.
3: I will say the first third of it. Also, like they have the hunger strike and they're successful, and then it just kind of ends. Right. And like it was very abrupt transition to the second movie.
2: Yeah, it was almost like they just needed to keep it going. They needed to squeeze more pointless images of Israel. They needed to get out of. Greece yeah. so here's the new Jew according to America
5: we won't lose if the British give in and let us go we've won and if we starve to death aboard this ship we've still won
0: they'll wait they'll wait until you're too weak to resist and then they'll come aboard and they'll take you off
5: doesn't take much strength to set off 200 pounds of dynamite
0: you mean you'd still set it off knowing you've lost of course Without any regard for the lives you'd be destroying?
5: With every regard in the world for
0: them. I don't understand.
5: Each person on board this ship is a soldier. The only weapon we have to fight with is our willingness to die.
0: But for what purpose?
5: Call it publicity.
0: Publicity?
5: Yes, publicity, a stunt to attract attention. A letter to the newspapers. A help wanted ad add to the official journal of the United Nations. Wanted by 600 men, women, and children a country. A native land, a home. It's all they're dying for. Just to call attention to Israel without ever having seen it themselves. Does the vulgarity of it shock you? You can't
0: fight the whole British Empire with 600 people. It is impossible.
5: How many Minutemen did you have at Concord the day they fired? the shot her around the world. I don't know. 77.
2: Of course, that little piece of history on the tongue of every Sabra Jew. How many men were at Lexington and Concord?
4: Mm-hmm. He smuggled history books onto the boat, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I watched the movie through, and then I was also looking at some of the clips, and bringing up at this point just cuz this scene has me thinking about it is some of the kind of i I would call them comparisons but you could say parallels to the struggle of the Palestinians in in Gaza for their cause to have a stake or claim to the land that they had lived on and just the fact that they're you know saying these things unironically and then as this is, you know, they're creating this narrative of of what happened, you know, prior, and this is 1947, presumably, with no sense of what the Palestinians are going through as even correct or right, or they're seen as barbaric. They
1: don't emphasize, don't is kind of what you're trying to say. Like, they don't emphasize. Yeah. With,
4: yeah, I agree. There are other scenes, I think, that do a better sort of, uh, you could draw those comparisons, but it's just very much... He's calling this like a publicity stunt, basically saying we're doing this to get the attention of the world.
2: No, I think you're getting at a really good point. And it's sort of the the justifications in this movie for terrorism and violence. And it uses that premise of the American Revolution as a justification for violence against odds. It's just really convenient the way that they've structured this narrative in the first movie is that it's purely the Jewish people versus the british
4: looking at this movie as meant for an american audience primarily it's american movie but american jewish audience is to say oh well we wouldn't exist here on you know the united states of america on you know stolen land of all the people we slaughtered but if we hadn't broken away from the british so of course the the jewish people should be able to break away from the british yet again and take what's theirs
2: Not only has the American founded itself on rugged individualism by breaking away from the British, but also the Jew is going to do the same thing. And the heart of every Jew is really just the American spirit.
3: That also ties into kind of the Cold War framing in this movie. They're directly tying Jewish identity to that American spirit is could almost also be seen as a way to break away from the anti-semitic tropes of all jews being communists and all the red baiting even though the movie also plays into that a little bit but we shouldn't expect this movie to be consistent in its messaging
2: no no this movie's kind of all over the place even in that last scene when ari ben canaan is asking the british officer to look into his eye for a cinder he jokingly talks about how You have a revolution on your hands if you get three Jews together. Mm -hmm. And it's very much coded in the language of the Cold War.
4: Yeah. And ironically, the person who wrote the screenplay was one of those affected by the... Dalton Trumbo. He was
2: a communist that was directly attacked and silenced by HUAC.
4: Yeah, he was one of the 10 directors that were blackballed. And this is what brought him back.
2: Yeah, Evan, I think you were trying to make that comparison when we were talking about it. You said that Trumbo, a lot of his movies have to do with like a David versus Goliath.
4: Yes, they do. Mm. Spartacus.
2: Which also came out in this year. And he was announced as the actual writer for that movie, I think, less than a month after he was announced for Exodus. The whole publicity around Trumbo being the screenwriter for this movie was itself a piece of propaganda to show that these Jewish directors, these Jewish writers, Eurus and Preminger, aren't going to be told what to do. They're the new Jew. They're striking out on their own and, you know, bucking the system of thinking of leftism as something that Jews are beholden to.
4: In itself, is like a revolutionary act against, you know, the Hollywood system. Yeah, that somehow it's of the American
2: capitalist spirit to accept communists writing your screenplays.
4: It's funny because it almost seems like uh, him returning to write movies again, he kind of probably had to make a sacrifice to his own ideals to not really make movies like maybe he once would have. There is no true left representation in this movie, except in these little like quips. Yeah,
1: man's got to eat. So the
3: takeaway from this is that HUAC worked <laughs> and uh, Dalton Trumbo is an example of that. Successful government policy. And he loved
2: Big Brother. That poor man is taking a beating in this conversation. He made such great (laughs) movies before this. Poor guy. Yeah, this might not be left, but Evan was hinting at the the sort of justification for violence that's throughout this movie. And this movie, at least the second portion of the movie, as I've laid out during the prison break, takes as a central conflict the attempt of Ari to reunite his feuding father and uncle, Uh, a storyline that just kind of putters out and doesn't do anything after a while. But anyway, his father, Barak, represents the Haganah, the primary labor Zionist paramilitary organization in Palestine, which advocated for Jewish immigration by more diplomatic means. While his uncle Akiva represents the Irgun, an antagonistic revisionist Zionist paramilitary organization, which engaged in more open acts of terrorism Against both Brits and Arabs in Palestine. The bombing of the King David Hotel is actually represented in the film, although I don't believe it has any bearing in terms of the reality of when these events happened, because both the exodus, the bombing of the King David Hotel, and the prison break are real events. They just don't happen that quickly apart or in this order. So the two real world paramilitary groups are represented in the film as conflicting on the role of violence in the cause for the Jewish homeland. So this clip is a little bit long, but I think it's interesting in the current discourse around Palestinian resistance, as Evan was noting.
5: I think these bombings and these killings hurt us with the United Nations. A year ago, we had the respect of the whole world. Now when they read about us, it's nothing but terror and violence. It's
6: not the first time this happens in history. I don't know of one nation, whether existing now or in the past, that was not born in violence. Terror... Violence, death, they are the midwives who bring free nations into this
5: world and compromises like the Haganah produce only abortions. Before you have a country, you have to have people. And that's the job that we've done. Tens of thousands of people smuggled in with a, with a whole British Navy blockading the coast. Population, the population we've built is our most valid argument we have for independence. How can we ask the United Nations for a just decision if we keep on blowing up things like a bunch of anarchists? you've just used the
6: words a just decision, may I tell you something? Firstly, justice itself is an abstraction completely devoid of reality. Secondly, to speak of justice and Jews in the same breath is a logical absurdity. Thirdly, one can argue the justice of Arab claims on Palestine just as one can argue the justice of Jewish claims. Fourthly, no one can say the Jews have not had more than their share of injustice these past 10 years. I therefore say, fifthly, let the next injustice work against somebody else for a change.
4: Sixthly. Seventhly.
2: Let the next injustice work against someone else for a change. That really struck me when I heard this, because it really can be used today to understand the Palestinian conflict if taken out of context. I mean, this is the justification for violence in the creation of a state. Yeah.
1: I was, um, I'm not Jewish. That's why I redirect all my Jewish questions to my good friend, Gabe. Gabe, sorry, that's what you're here for, buddy.
2: That's fair <laughs> enough.
1: I know my role. I like to consider myself like a student of like, Irish history. I try to be. And it's like the parallels with violence and nonviolence and the sectarianism and how many splinter groups have come off? It's, you know, there is a lot of parallels between that. So I think for a lot of people, maybe if they use that knowledge, they can better understand what is happening right now in, in Gaza and everything.
2: And maybe violence, maybe good idea. I'm sorry. Can you lay out your points by arbitrarily assigning them numbers? It makes it really easier to understand. <laughs> uh, I I can't count. <laughs> It's true. There, there really is a justification for violence here, and it's using the American example as a justification for violence as well. It begs the question, why would this appeal to American Zionists other, rather than the Arab argument? I guess they want them to take up arms.
1: Radicalize them. Right?
2: I'll throw this to the Jewish expert in the film expert, but... Uh, <laughs> Can you guys name any uh, radical Arab propaganda that was produced or remotely popular in the United States that was arguing this position? No. No. Can you think of any that have been produced since an attempt to tell the Palestinian side to the story, the justification for violence on their side?
4: I mean, usually the people referring to their violence are those the ones on the quote-unquote receiving end, and it can be seen through their eyes. Oh, well, their stones are, uh, are really going to hurt us, so it's okay that we, you know, bomb them to complete smithereens. The scale of which is just... It's hard to fathom.
3: I don't think this propaganda ever really made it to the U.S., but there was, within the it's kind of hard to explain there was a political movement called left poel which was like the communist offshoot of labor zionism if not communist then left socialist the 20s and 30s was really complicated but they did actively promote both jewish and arab violence and revolutionary violence against the british but in order to establish a multinational workers state but that is the only example i know of of even remotely pro-arab violence outside of palestine at the time
2: and i assume they got somebody of the same stature as paul newman to star in that as well right they made some stamps in
3: 1934 and made some posters (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they did have, like, a large political movement, interwar Poland, but then the Showa happened and that mm. got wiped out.
4: As far as, like, film goes, there really isn't any Palestinian cinema with the exception of a few until the last 20 years, for probably obvious reasons.
2: I can't personally think of any major American films in which Hollywood produced a film with top billing actors starring in it, which justified violence for the sake of Arab or the Palestinian project. This piece of propaganda, Exodus, really is a way, as Edward Said argues, that Americans continued to think about this project. I actually
3: did think of one film that did justify Arab violence, Lawrence of Arabia, but that's Arab violence in support of British imperialism, so it's acceptable. And is also... A grueling epic.
2: (laughs) I haven't seen that movie in a long time. From what I remember, the Arabs are portrayed in a very specific British view. Like, there's good Arabs and bad Arabs. Yeah.
3: I mean, it's incredibly Orientalist. I haven't seen it in a while either. Yeah, from my recollection of it, it's very much like any Arab that worked with Lawrence is automatically good. And that was basically as far as they got into actually analyzing Arab life and politics.
2: Who are the bad guys in this movie as a total? British and
4: non-Jews. The Gentiles. Arabs. I mean, some Arabs.
3: I think it's anyone that stands in the way of the Zionist project, Uh regardless of who they are.
2: Right, so even though the Irgun and the Haganah are shown as conflicting... It's ultimately stated,
7: in this fatal optimism, you are Haganah. In methodology, you are Yukun. But in the heart, you are Israel.
2: That he is the new Jew. He's capable of understanding the need for diplomacy and the need for violence. The enemies are very clearly outside. Yeah. And in the first movie, it's the British. And in the second part of the movie, it's the Arabs. Leon Uris is said to have hated director Otto Preminger and screenwriter Dalton Trumbo's adaptation of his script for his book. The primary issue for Uris? According to Foster Hirsch, Preminger's biographer, quote, With Exodus, Preminger was trying hard to see all sides of the questions surrounding the creation of the Jewish state. That triggered outrage from Uris. He still had unresolved anger towards Preminger when I interviewed him in the summer of 2002. Eurus was very nice to me, but blew up at the mere mention of Otto's name. Preminger didn't want to take virility, anti-British, anti-Arab stance of the book. He wanted a more balanced treatment. Exodus is unmistakably a Zionist film. But there is an attempt at political realism and pragmatism. Preminger made a film that allowed for the possibility of reconciliation and peace. Quote, all of that said, the Arab is presented in the body of Taha, a brother-like figure of Ari. We'll begin with his ascent as a character, and then we can go over his descent. So this is his first presentation.
6: Here is Taha, son of Kamal since five years, Muhtar of Abu Yeshab. Thank
2: you, Barack ben
0: Village president, Dr. Ernst Lieberman. In this valley of Jasriel, we we dwell together as friends. It is natural that we should live in peace, since even our words for it are almost exactly the same. We say, salam, and you, shalom. Let us seal our friendship forever with that most beautiful of Hebrew toasts,
5: "Lahaim" to life.
0: Lachaim?
2: So naturally, Taha has a American accent because he grew up among Sabra Jews, but we'll go past that. So we're actually given an insight into his upbringing a little bit later in the movie.
0: When the Syrian Arabs murdered my father in his own mosque.
5: Ari's father saved my life and my heritage.
0: Ari and I used to live together in Yadel, shared the same room. To me, his house
4: was life itself. It's immediately him sharing the story that he Ari Ben Canaan's father saved him is really using the, you know, you normally might say like in a film like The White Savior. Mm -hmm. And this is like the Jewish Savior that saved the Arabs from the destruction that I wonder who brought? Oh, it was the Jews Mm -hmm. who were literally, you know, especially from like the late 30s, all of the uh, Jews that were moving into Palestine and there was like the Arab revolt and all of the Irgun attacks against the Arabs, killing hundreds and hundreds of, of Arabs at the time. But the victim in this case, this one guy saved by the Jews, it's just fucking ironic. Actually, I think the real victim
1: is the, everyone who had a watch Paul Newman coming back to life. (laughs) That, That scene, was that not a half hour long? Oh my God. Her assembling the needle and everything. Jeez, what a slug. I was like, at that point, I was like, just kill him. I don't, he's fine. Don't bring him back. We can end the movie here, guys.
3: She was clearly not an emergency room nurse. (laughs) She took her damn time. She took her sweet time getting that stuff together. It was brutal. It's like
4: 45 minutes of, of those cuts, you know just didn't need to be long shots that just were too long
1: that and the british prison camp scene where they were inspecting the food and all that that just went on and on it was like oh my god you can do this in one scene
2: yeah that whole prison camp thing was also like the most exciting scene but it could have been boiled down to like a 20 minute plot line at most
4: i think it was meant the way they did it to show this you know all of the different plots the and Goran Hotel and all the bombings and everything is meant to show this very, at least to me, in my perspective, is just to show all the intricate ways and these comprehensive plans that the Jews took to take back, you know, their homeland. All the planning, all the things, it's all was worth it because of the end result.
3: It struck me as very much like portraying all of that planning and everything almost like a mid century American gangster movie. There was a lot, uh, especially with Dove and like all of the little interactions that he has with people on street corners and whatnot, that it just really struck me as
4: almost Uh, (laughs) Godfather-esque. Yeah. Sneaking in a spy movie or something like that in the middle of this.
2: They were really trying to please all audiences. I mean, you have your love story, you have your gripping action, you have your suspense, you have your political drama. It's just it doesn't feel like any of it works, but no, that's with the huge caveat that this movie was insanely popular. I would want to sit
4: down with someone who loved this movie and just say, just have them tell me why. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think you'll like what you hear, though. <laughs> I mean, it's one thing to agree with the premise of the movie, but I, don't, I just don't understand sitting through such a long film and then. It's almost like you've already made up your mind yeah. as to what you believe before. It doesn't matter the, con- the content at some point, yeah. right? Because there are enjoyable propaganda movies that you can just sit down and yeah. be like,
1: this was actually well done and not have to cater to what is being espoused. But this movie was just propaganda and of slog at points. So, I mean. Yeah. So, I'm surprised. I mean, I, I guess I'm not surprised, though, that it was such a, a good turnout at the box office
2: I have a really great clip that I think just really encapsulates the slog of this movie let's see if we can get ourselves through it
4: three and a half hour clip
5: every time I come home I stop here and just look for a minute you want to look with me? sure (laughs) Valley
2: of Jezreel. So for the listeners at home, you heard that sweeping epic music. Could somebody describe what we just watched? Oh, please, cuz I
1: wrote a lot of notes. I got to tell you and, and I wrote down the epic music being played over non-epic things and then there being silence <laughs> over epic moments. Like they turned the music down when they saw <laughs> when they saw everything. But like casually walking down a hill,
2: you don't need epic music. It's like the most awkward movements as it well is. they're clearly <laughs> uncomfortable the entire way down that hill that they're stumbling down
1: i think because they were making an epic they knew they had to pan everything out they had to make or not they had to stretch everything out they had to make everything to like past three hours I mean, is, is there an epic that's less than three hours long evan
4: an epic like this i mean feel like that it's like you have to get to that three <laughs> i don't know the god how long is the godfather is it three plus oh yeah. Right. I, yeah i think it is it's also two
2: movies
3: well this is three movies you said so (laughs) yeah i will also say like as a fan of peter jackson lord of the rings i have no issue (laughs) with long epic panoramic shots but they have to actually
4: be done well yeah i was gonna say i could have three more hours of lord of the rings and i'd be fine with it yeah
2: and i i think the comparison is actually pretty apt so after Lord of the Rings was produced, apparently tourism to New Zealand skyrocketed, right? People want to go on the Lord of the Rings tour. There were Exodus tours. They attempted to make this into a piece of propaganda.
4: Well, so when I was in, let's see how old, 15? So I've been to Israel a few times, the last time being that semester I spent there. But one of the previous times was through a Jewish camp. And we went to Prague to... Concentration camps, and the plan was to go to Cyprus and go on the literal Exodus boat to Israel to re- to replicate this movie. But the boat had a mechanical problem, so we didn't do it. Instead, we went to Istanbul for no apparent reason. That's just where they-, <laughs> they sent us for like three days in a rat infested uh, youth hostel. But yes, I mean that is forty years after, fifty years after this movie. It's a weird thing that they're still doing to this day. I had
3: kind of a similar experience that it was Young Judea that I went with, and they have a program where they start you. I was in Rome for like, I think five days, where we basically just did tours of the old Jewish ghetto around Rome, and then went up into the mountains and talked about Italian participation in the Holocaust, and then they put us on a plane to Tel Aviv, but it was still very much that same because birthright will take you directly to Israel, but there are a lot of other journeys that start you in Europe and be like, this is where everything was bad. And now we're going to take you to Israel where it's all nice and happy. Don't look over
4: there. Yeah.
3: Literally. The t- <laughs> when going to the old city in Jerusalem and them saying like, Hey, yeah, don't walk past that storefront. Cause that's the Palestinian quarter.
4: All the same thing. Yep. And I, wet
3: anyway that half the group i went with went over there and immediately bought a bunch of pot
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> i
1: guess i gotta go on a pilgrimage
2: <laughs> the land of israel is incredibly important to this i mean it was the state of israel that donated time and energy in order to help make this film come to fruition i believe if you watch the end credits is a special thanks to the state of israel this was shot on scene so this was known as a piece of propaganda with some input by the state of Israel. And I think what's really interesting is what they actually talk about in this faux epic scene immediately afterward. So as we discussed in the 1950 Blasting ben gurion agreement, the dominant strand of Zionism and the American Reformed Jewish movement defined Judaism as a religion and not an ethnicity. This film only defines the Jew as an ethnicity and leaves out religion. Except for this scene.
5: You know your Bible,
0: your Presbyterian sort of way.
5: That's Mount Tabor.
0: Oh, I remember where Deborah gathered her armies.
5: That's where she stood when she watched Barak march out to fight the Canaanites. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor and ten thousand men with him. It's in the Book of Judges. The Canaanites had 900 iron chariots, The Barak had men 3,200 years ago. That's when the Jews first came to this valley. It wasn't just yesterday or the day before.
2: So as far as I know, this is the only citation of biblical text in the entire movie. Immediately after these, uh, at least attempted, beautiful panoramas of the land of Israel. So what is the argument being made here about the connection of Judaism as an ethnicity and a religion?
4: Very clearly, like, I had to chuckle slightly. It's very much the argument that I'm seeing presently online by many Zionists of, you know, we were here 3,000 years ago as, you know, this uh, up-and-coming religious group, and we're back. So we we called fives on this land. It's very, uh, I do think of how it plays into the religious aspect, but just also the story of this, like, uh, David versus Goliath type of story is also again with Trumbo being very much pulling that like this scene felt very intentional perspective of the Jews against everyone.
3: This scene also struck me again, that this was how much this was made for a white American audience. Cause just the quip in a Presbyterian sort of way, that's such a middle America waspy
2: kind of response (laughs) to
3: that. It is. and. That line in particular really drove home, to me at least, that like, oh, I am not at all the intended audience of in this movie.
1: <laughs> it's, om- it's almost to me, Gabe. It's almost to me. You're still a little too ethnic with your <laughs> Polish-Irish Catholic. so.
2: <laughs> the argument being made here is that Jews are defined not by their sort of practices or their stereotypes as being the lawyer or the banker they're warriors they're the people that fought for their land and now they're returning this is the new jew this is the jew that's connected to the land that they're reconquering
4: yeah i jew yeah i
1: jew
2: oh god <laughs> don't give the husburshts any ideas we'll see that <laughs> broke cut that, on twitter cut that. tomorrow Do you guys remember any other instances in this movie when religious practices are actually represented?
4: Uh, mm -hmm.
2: So the easy one that you can miss, because it's completely in the background, and it's one of those superfluous scenes where a ton of nothing happens, and I'm not going to subject you to it. It's when the British soldiers are going after Dov, and he hides in a Catholic seminary, and you see a Catholic procession going on behind him. It's long. It's drawn out. It is three minutes long of Dov running around, and it's clearly trying to show you all of these Catholic things going on. So you got the Presbyterians, you got the Catholics, and then the final representation of anything like religious practice is in the prison. It shows the Arab people doing their daily prayers. Right. So what are these representations? Why show religion in this way. There are no Jews praying in this movie. There's one person wearing a kippah, and it's the kosher butcher that's smuggling things inside the goats. There's a greater representation of Catholic faith in Exodus than Jewish faith.
4: It very much also hits again on just the audience for this movie as maybe a non-practicing kind of secular Jew in America who might want to, to go there and they can fit in easily because you don't need to be you know, a religious person who maybe even speaks Hebrew or beyond the, the general prayers or something like that. I mean, that that I know was what that trip I went on was it wasn't a really a religious trip. It was a, mm-hmm. a secular trip that happened to be in Israel.
2: If you want to pray, you can pray in America. What you're missing, though, is you're missing your connection to the land. And I think with the other big thing that's sort of spoken around in circles in this movie, I don't know that it's ever made explicit. Is this argument that we need to have a Jewish homeland in Israel or else those scary Muslims are going to have control over the Catholic
4: homeland of Jesus? Mm. Uh, You might be on to something there. Hmm. The right wing Zionists who aren't Jews who they claim.
2: But why else have Dov run around a Catholic area for three whole minutes? There's no progress of the plot in that entire scene. It's purely to show the Christian homeland aspect of this movie. Well, I mean, when
1: Jesus comes back, you want Jews to be in charge of the Holy Land, right? Right, guys? Right? Right? All right, I'm talking about <laughs> Christian brothers here. Yeah, I think so.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: He'd be real confused otherwise.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so something that we've talked around is the Holocaust. It's central. It's in the creation of the state of Israel, and it's central to the storyline of Exodus. So we'll begin with this clip.
6: Attention! Attention! All passengers from the Star of David, listen carefully. We have received orders to evacuate you immediately. I repeat, all those who arrived on the Star of David are to be evacuated at once. Please prepare to board
7: to the British lorries now passing through
6: the camp. Report at once to your nearest Palestinian guard guard. Achtung, achtung. genau. What does
0: this mean? HMJFC. His Majesty's Jewish Forces on Cyprus. What else?
2: So Gabe, I think to your earlier point, what language are they speaking there?
3: After the English announcement, it went to German. While the displaced persons camps that the Allies were in control of were largely in Germany, there were a huge number of Eastern European Ashkenazi Jews that had fled across the border to get into the DP camps. And while the German Jews were largely assimilated and didn't speak Yiddish to the same amount like Eastern European Jews. It was the common language on the Jewish street. But the complete lack of Yiddish anywhere in this movie is not only striking from just a historical perspective, because we know it was being spoken in DP camps and you were speaking it secretly once you made it to Israel or Palestine, but both the Zionist. Organizations and the Israeli state were actively suppressing any Yiddish expression because they recognized it not only as a piece of diaspora that they wanted to get rid of to create that new Jew, but also Yiddish had been promoted by the radical Jewish left, both in the Soviet Union, sort of. In the 30s and 40s, Yiddish in the Soviet Union got weird, but that's a whole other story. But in Poland specifically, where the majority of Jews were living, both the Jewish Labour Bund and Left Poelzion organized massive systems of Yiddish schools for working class Jewish kids or promoting Yiddish culture. But both of them posed a threat to the Zionist political movement who were supporting Hebrew as the new Jewish language for the new Sabra Jew. It was just really interesting to see that German was being spoken, but not Yiddish. And then all like even the signage in the DP camp was in Hebrew. I'm wondering when all of these Holocaust survivors had time to learn modern Hebrew when did they learn this modern language that probably none of them spoke unless they were already involved in Zionist political movements and were Hebrewists. That just really annoyed me.
4: (laughs) And there's that scene that's a little bit before the uh, when I think it's when Kitty first arrives at the camp and they also talk about sort of like the two entrances, which again has other connotations to it as well. But I believe the one side was in Hebrew. I think you like you're talking about game and the other side was, Well, I guess it was in English because it was the British gate. Mm -hmm. So there it's English and in Hebrew. But yeah, uh, who is that for? They also filmed this entire movie in Israel for the most part, I believe. There are a few scenes in Cyprus. So
3: I am not well versed enough in like the actual internal politics of Yiddish suppression by the actual state of Israel versus it just being a kind of like social thing. But I wouldn't be surprised if one there was never even any concept of having Yiddish in the movie, but two, that the Jewish state specifically said you cannot have any Yiddish and that everything has to be Hebrew. There's also a scene where Karen says, uh, we have our own language now.
0: She's helping me with Hebrew, so I can catch up with the others. Hebrew? Yes, we have a language of our own
3: now. That also just, like, Shoved that knife into my Yiddishist spine a little bit further (laughs) because it's like you've had your own language. Well, and admittedly, Karen, being a fairly assimilated Jew living in Denmark, wouldn't have had like a connection to that. So, from her character specifically, that's understandable. But the vast majority of the Ashkenazi Jewish world had this whole unique cultural tradition and expression. That just gets completely ignored and actively suppressed in propaganda like this.
1: Gabe, if it makes you feel better, my notes for Karen Hansen is teen Zionist is nutsy. Yeah, that is accurate. And now I don't know why, but now I need a teen Zionist magazine.
2: (laughs) Oh, God. I'm sure it's out there. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yiddish really does get the shaft in this movie. Mm -hmm. And that's not even to mention Ladino, which also exists in the state of Israel at this point. not only is Karen ridiculous in saying now we have a Jewish language, they had two Jewish languages before the recreation of modern Hebrew. They had scores. Yeah. Because there's also Judeo-Arabic and
3: then every Arabic region had its own version of Judeo-Arabic. So like Judeo-Yemeni Arabic is distinctly different from
1: Judeo-Iraqi Arabic. It it gets annoying. I can barely speak English.
4: Yeah.
2: (laughs) But I think it... Ties back to what you were saying earlier. This film can be encapsulated on what is the new Jew. They are arguing mm-hmm. that the new Jew speaks Hebrew. But what's funny about that is how often is Hebrew spoken in this movie?
4: At the kibbutz, him referring to salam and shalom. It's like that the only time that anyone speaks Hebrew is the actually the Arab they depict in the movie. They
2: say shalom to each other. That's a- yeah, that's about as much Hebrew as I know as well. That is not speaking Hebrew. That's like ordering your food in a Mexican restaurant and saying hola before you make your order. (laughs) You're not ordering in Spanish.
1: Hey, my mom still says gracias at Chinese restaurants, so don't even get me started. (laughs) (laughs) I think it is just Shalom and them
3: singing Hatikva. Yeah. Preminger probably was kind of caught in a weird situation where he has to both portray this like new jewish nationalist identity but then he can't make it actually distinct from american conceptions of national identity Mm -hmm. because like even by the 60s there was a relatively distinct israeli culture that had come about as an amalgamation of all of these other jewish cultures that also got suppressed by the ashkenormative white supremacist culture that was already there but that like you can't actually show any of that because it has to be palatable to American audiences. And that would have made it a little too Orientalist or too too foreign.
2: We spoke about this earlier, but right. The accents in this movie are just insane. They're all over the place. Dob speaks in an American accent in spite of being German. Barack speaking in this Russian, whereas his brother is Eastern European. And it's easy enough, we could even chalk this up to just being an American film for Americans. How often were accurate accents portrayed in any films in this era? I I just don't know the answer to that. But it really fits into the idea of making these Jews attractive to Americans by making them less Jewy. Instead, they're Europeans or they're Americans. They don't have these Israeli accents. They don't have any thick really placeable accents at all. But Steering us back to the representation of the Holocaust, I thought this scene was pretty interesting.
5: I am sorry, Mrs. Frankel. The children must go back. You can go back if you want to with them. Now that's a Haganah order. You're an important man, Mr. Ari ben Canaan, but you know nothing. Look
7: at these babies at mine.
5: Born behind barbed wire. For the first time, they don't have to look out through a fence like little animals. They are free now, and nobody, no Englishman, no Haganah will ever lock
2: them up again. (laughs) These children were not born behind the barbed wire of the Holocaust concentration camps. These children would have been born behind the barbed wire of British containment. But the comparison is meant to be very intentional. As a parent, I look at
1: that scene a little different. I know you're looking at more of a historical aspect, them being behind British bars instead of German bars, but... I I kind of agree with her, you know, if her kids grew up behind bars, shit, this is like that little, minuscule amount of freedom. So it's the first thing they know in their life, so.
3: I want to push back on one thing, because there were, I don't know how many children were born in the concentration camps or the death camps, but there were a lot of children born in the ghettos, and at least some of the older kids there could have been born in like Warsaw Ghetto in 42-ish, but I don't know of anyone born in the camps themselves.
2: Yeah, everybody aboard the Exodus in this movie is meant to be from the Star of David, which is meant to be from Auschwitz. Okay. I don't believe these children were born in Auschwitz, but the, the connotation is very clearly that.
4: Yeah. They can't remain behind bars. Anything that they can do to gain their freedom, you know, at all, at this yeah. point, it's at all costs. So for like a millisecond, I'm like, yeah, then I'm like, oh, shit,
1: no, wait a minute. Oh, hold on. Let's let's go back a little bit.
2: Take it to the modern time. I mean, that's the argument of why would they do anything in their power, the Palestinians, to break out of their own cages, to seek freedom even for a minute, to seek anything for their children? It's a pretty universalist argument, and it's one that does get you.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, that's one big thing, I think, for all the footage coming out of Gaza is it's heartbreaking. You know, it's heartbreaking as a, as just a normal person without kids, but when you have kids, that's like a whole nother freaking level. You know what I mean? This scene
3: also just made me think of the Zionist conception of new Jewish liberation after the Holocaust, and that being obviously tied to violently establishing the state of Israel. But there was also within like the Jewish resistance, you saw a lot of similar ideology, but from an explicitly like class war internal resistance to fascism mindset because there's the song be still the night is full of stars which is about a young girl from the warsaw ghetto shooting a german convoy and stealing guns the song ends with saying it was a small victory for our new free generation that scene just juxtaposed in my head to that song because it's two very different responses to the same conditions that people were placed under.
2: Yeah, and there was a very intentional cultural push in around 1960, late 1950s in Israel itself to sort of change the perception of the survivors of the Holocaust, to take them from being these sort of passive refugees that were blamed for their own suffering and make them into something more powerful. We talked about this in our eighth part surrounding the trial of Adolf Eichmann from the kidnapping by the Mossad in 1959 to his hanging in 1961. But the whole trial around this Nazi war criminal opened the floodgates of Holocaust memoirs and research around the world. So this film coming out as it did in 1960 might be the very first visceral exposure an American audience might have had to the horrors of the Holocaust outside of the ongoing testimony at the Eichmann trial. It's actually kind of hard for us to imagine, given that we all grew up in a modern American education system where the Holocaust is kind of central to the American identity that we've made for ourselves in World War II. But I think it really helps explain why this scene in particular got Sal a nomination for an Oscar.
7: At no time... Did the Jews use dynamite in the Warsaw Ghetto? They had no dynamite. Do you remember better now? Maybe. So it was not possible for you to learn the use of dynamite in the Warsaw Ghetto? You learned about dynamite in Auschwitz making mass graves to receive the dead bodies of your people, true? Hundreds and... Hundreds of thousands of them, huh? Yes. And you saved your own life by working in that camp as a commando. correct? Yes. It was the duty of those Jews who became commandos to shave the heads of other Jews. Yes. To remove dead bodies from the gas chambers collect gold fillings from their teeth.
6: Yes!
5: (gasps) What could I do?
7: Thirteen, when you entered Auschwitz, even so, we must have the truth. Is there anything else? Yes. And tell us.
5: No, I, I won't tell you. Please don't make me tell you. I, kill me, I don't care. I, I won't tell you.
7: You will repeat for me the following words. I, Dovlando. I, Dovlando. give my body, my brain, my soul, and my being. You give my body, my brain, my soul, and my being. Without reservation and qualification. Without reservation or qualification. To the freedom fighters of the Irgun. To the freedom fighters of the Irgun. Under torture, even unto death. Under torture, even unto death. I will never divulge the name of a fellow member of the Irgun. I will never divulge the name of a fellow member of the Irgun.
2: (laughs) So There we have the rescuing of the passive Holocaust survivor being made into the new Jew. He's taking his oath to be part of the terrorist organization, the Irgun, on a gun and Bible.
4: The menorah as the candle holder.
2: I mean, there is no subtlety in this movie whatsoever. (laughs) And I think this is the other religious depiction.
3: Watching this after seeing the pictures of IOF troops using a knife to read the Torah, this just really set me off when I first watched this. Someone described it as Judaism of the Blade. It just made me so fucking angry to watch this scene after seeing that.
2: The Irgun draws its trajectory directly to the Likud party. This ideology has been there since the very beginning. Netanyahu is not an abrasion. He's a continuation of Judaism by the knife.
3: And it's also worth noting that in the 30s... Ben-Gurion, who gets held up as the moderate labor Zionist, was making deals with Jabotinsky, the leader of the Revisionists, so that they could solidify power against the rising more left wing and pro-binational state movements that were showing up at the time.
2: And I would argue this movie makes excuses in that same line to say that both of these movements actually came together in the creation of Israel and need to be equally respected. Mm hmm. Which completely upends any of these modern, quote-unquote, liberal Zionist arguments that what we're experiencing in Israel now is anything other than the continuation of Zionist history.
4: This is one of the scenes in this movie that I just found just appalling. I don't don't know. It just really rubs me the wrong way. There's an even more
2: appalling, disturbing scene right here.
0: I am the Mukhtar of this village and I will not attack Gandhi. We know you are the Mukhtar. You must understand that the Grand Mufti has publicly committed himself and every Arab man, woman and child to die rather than accept the partitioning of Palestine. His Holiness does not recognize the decision of a few elderly gentlemen at Flushing Meadows who call themselves the United Nations. Since you are a Muslim, you cannot recognize it either. But what does all this have to do with attacking Gandafna? Gandafna commands the entire Jezreel Valley. The Mufti must pass through this valley on his way to Safed. He has made Suffet his provisional capital until the last Jew in Palestine is exterminated. There are 650,000 Jews in Palestine. Temporarily. The Grand Mufti was our guest in Berlin during the war. Since I and my group of friends are now his guests, we have placed our experience in handling Jews entirely at his disposal. I have 80 Arab stormtroopers in my command. You will supply 300 men by tomorrow at midnight to join them.
1: I got up to go to the bathroom and I came back and there was a cartoonist German villain on the screen. So, I mean, I had no idea what was going on at that time.
2: (laughs) I'm not saying it makes any sense, but the argument here is that the Arabs are Nazis. There's no other way to understand this scene.
4: Elaborator. I mean, this is the the justification for the impending Nakba, essentially, to say, well, they were going to kill all the Jews first. So it's okay that we did it.
3: And you still see this argument show up everywhere. Yeah. All the time that whenever you say anything, even remotely pro-Palestine, at some point someone's going to bring up the Grand Mufti. As if the Palestinian people are a one monolithic group that just mindlessly follow this man, as opposed to a very, diverse society that had its own extreme political like infighting in the 30s and 40s while all of this was going on
2: i think this movie even tries to address the infighting and the varied opinions within the arab world with this incredibly visceral scene
4: Swastika in the foreground, too. Mm-hmm. The imagery
2: in this scene is just all over the place.
4: So, what happens to Taha, the good Arab? I mean, he's basically being hung for being a, a traitor to the Arab Nazi alliance. I, I mean, I don't know, other confused way they want to depict this. No, I think you got it yeah it doesn't make it this this makes no sense at all, except for American Jews at home thinking, if we don't have this land of Israel, the Nazis are going to be reincarnated and just dis- murder us all again
2: Would you maybe be not so surprised to hear somebody call them Muslim Nazis and that's why they have to be undressed and marched through the West Bank? I mean this continues to this day, yep this is all deeply disturbing stuff and it's yeah. still happening and it's here in 1960
4: sanitized and rewashed for american audiences i mean that's what makes this movie albeit a bad piece of propaganda and then it's just not a good movie it's propaganda nonetheless that i think being that it was popular the one thing i don't think you i don't know if you saw this the movie made around eight or ten million in american canada but it also made 10 million of its 20 million dollars. Internationally, I couldn't find any information on where that was, what country specifically it was popular in, but that I find very fascinating and plays into how they were not just trying to propagandize American Jews, but maybe international to gain sympathy from non Jews abroad, which is probably the audience there.
2: Mm -hmm. I know it was not very popular in Great Britain for obvious reasons. (laughs) Actually, I wonder how much it was played in Ireland. Hmm. Oh, this
3: is kind of another side point that the last freeze frame where we had everyone looking up at Taha reminded me of it, that once they get off the boat, you don't see any Jewish adults that aren't in some way related to the resistance. Mm. And that by the end of the movie, every single Jewish adult you see is armed Mm -hmm. or if not armed, like. They are ready to be armed. I'm just thinking, like, in terms of the depiction of Jews throughout this film, it ends with them literally being a military yeah, in uniform standing at a military funeral. And it's, it's something I hadn't really caught until now, but they just in the costuming, the film goes from, like, huddled masses to we're all wearing khaki None of us know how to wear a friggin' bucket hat, apparently, <laughs> but, but we're all wearing either khaki or denim, and every one of us has a Sten gun, which, that's a whole other historical inaccuracy. But anyway, <laughs> I think that also kind of gets back to the, the G.I. Jew comment, that, like, that's really what they're portraying Israel as, and that's still, like, the Israeli conception of self is still very tied. To the military
4: yeah,
2: Mandatory military service to this day Yeah So I think we'll visit that scene that you're actually describing And round out this ridiculous movie <laughs> So this is the final words The eulogy from Ari Ben Kanan At the funeral of Taha and Aaron This
5: is Taha Mukhtar of Abu Yesha. And this is Karen, Secretary of the Rooms Committee, Bungalow 12 Gondafna. We have no Kadi to pray for Taha's soul, and we have no rabbi to pray over Karen. Taha should have lived a long life, surrounded by his people and his sons. And death should have come to him as an old friend offering the gift of sleep. It came instead as a maniac. And Karen, who loved her life and who lived it as purely as a flame, why did God forget her? Why did she have to stumble onto death so young and all alone and in the dark? Well, we of all people should no longer be surprised when death reaches out to us. With the world's insanity and our own slaughtered millions, we should be used to senseless killing. But I am not used to it. I cannot get used to it, and I will not get used to it. I look at these two people, and I want to howl like a dog. I want to shout murder so that the whole world will hear it and never forget it. It's right that these two people should lie side by side in this grave because they will share it in peace. But the dead always share the earth in peace. And that's not enough. It's time for the living to have a turn. A few miles from here, there are people who are fighting and dying, and we must join them. But I swear on the bodies of these two people that the day will come when Arab and Jew will share in a peaceful life this land that they have always shared in death. To our old friend. And very dear brother. Karen. Child of light. Daughter of Israel.
2: Shalom. So the final act of one of the main characters, Dov Landau, is he refuses to help bury the body of the Arab.
4: The irony also of Ari saying, you know, that the Arabs and the Jews will live side by side, given the events of the following very near and past of this pretend moment in history. I mean, I saw that he didn't put the dirt on, but I hadn't thought of it that way. That it's
1: because well, I thought it was just because he was upset about
4: Karen dying. I could easily see it being... He blames the Arabs for her death. And so
2: right there's some notion that he would want to bury her and give her a proper send off, but he won't even do that because she's laying with an Arab. I'm giving this movie way too much credit. I think (laughs) you're probably. Yeah, I think you're (laughs) dissecting
1: the scenes a little too much for this movie. (laughs) He just didn't feel like bending over.
3: (laughs) The other thing that struck me in this scene is Ari Ben Kanan describing Karen as a child of light. Yep. Mm. While well, trying to preach Arab-Jewish cohabitation, versus how that term showed up more recently.
4: Very much so.
3: I don't remember the exact wording of BB's tweet.
4: Yeah, it was like the child. The
3: is the children of light versus the children of darkness. Ooh.
4: Yeah, I think it's like the one of the only tweets they actually deleted.
3: Yeah, because they realized like, oh, we shouldn't be explicitly fascist on Maine. <laughs>
2: Just to burrow down on the contradictions in this scene that we're already talking to, it tries to posit an Ari's statement that someday the Arabs and the Jews will live together as one on the earth in peace as soon as Israel is safe. But everything that's presented in this movie is really leading to the fact that the Arabs will never be considered as one because they're not even represented in this movie. They're completely fictionalized. They're either Nazis. Or they're noble savages. They're not human beings.
4: So the movie gives lie to its entire premise. If you ask most American Jews at the time, and probably even now, 60 years later, if they could tell you what happened after the founding of Israel to all of the Arabs who were living there, most people would have been like, oh, they just they just left. And now there's Jews living there which is actually how I was essentially taught how how it happened. The term Nakba was never mentioned in my eight years going to a Jewish day school that I can ever remember. And that's quite a uh, omission from a major event in uh, the founding of Israel. So I guess it's meant to evoke in the people who are watching this as in the 60s to say like, oh, yep, I guess they do live peacefully. I'm not going to look any further into this. I'm sure it's true. They're betting on you not
1: looking any further into any of this. Yeah. This is very on the level propaganda.
4: And it was harder at that time to do that. Now you can't get away with that. Five minutes of research and you can be like,
1: well, there's a lot of people who don't do five minutes of research in this world, unfortunately.
2: Uh, yeah, guys, but there's an Arab in the Knesset. Therefore, they're equal.
3: Also the Mufti. So mm-hmm. just be quiet.
2: Yeah, as long as the Arabs agree to be under Jewish rule, they're fine. They're completely part of society. They're not treated as others or different. There's not two legal
4: systems or... I don't know what you're reading. That's what goes back to the, the scene of them depicting, essentially, the apartheid rule. I guess it was in Cyprus. This was done to us. Now we will do it to you. I keep going back to
3: an article written by one of the Bundes leaders in Poland is Zionism a liberating democratic movement? And he had a really interesting explanation of what a Jewish state in Palestine could be. I was thinking about like this peace and love concept of Arab-Jewish cohabitation, once Israel is safe. The way Henrik Ehrlich described it was, if by some miracle, because this was written in 1937... If by some miracle, you could create a Jewish state in Palestine, it would basically be built on eternal fear of both the external Arab threat and the eternal Palestinian threat. He recognized at the time that, like, this was a fundamentally exclusionary political movement that would never be able to actually build any kind of lasting peace. It's just a interesting to see even before the Nakba and you're starting to see it with the Jewish response to the Arab revolt in 37 at this point, this idea that there can never be peace so long as Zionism as it exists continues. Because they'll always say peace will come when Israel feels safe, but Israel cannot ever feel safe by the very nature of its construction.
2: It must be some sort of combination of willful ignorance and just such strong Israeli exceptionalist propaganda. And to build off your point, before October 7th, there were, I believe, weekly protests against the overhaul of the judicial system by the Netanyahu government. And within these sort of liberal Zionist circles, they were asking each other, why aren't the Palestinians joining the Israelis and protecting the courts and protecting this liberal government? They, they seem to be completely unaware of the persecutorial injustice at the founding of the very concept of the state of Israel, whether it's liberal Zionism, revisionist Zionism, or labor Zionism. The Palestinian has no part in the foundation and the structure and the fabric of this state other than being an outsider and other that's constructed as a boogeyman to prop up extensive uses of power and violence.
3: Yeah. And there were Palestinians that tried to join the protests and got told that they weren't wanted. Right. You're absolutely right that don't know if it's willful ignorance or sticking your head in the sand and which I guess is just
2: willful ignorance before October 7th, the world actually believed that Israel was the only democracy in the Middle East. I think now they understand it as an apartheid in the Middle East, and it's much harder to justify apartheid as democracy. I mean, it's a dark note, but on some ways, it's it's kind of a hopeful note that we're not going back to the way things used to be.
3: Yeah. Can we go back to the scene of shirtless Paul Newman so we can end on something less depressing? (laughs)
1: Thank you, Gabe, for saving me. We totally glossed over probably one of the best lines in the movie, which was, the whole room has turned their attention to Paraguay.
6: The Republic of Paraguay, which had instructions to abstain, has announced new instructions. The attention of the whole room turns to the delegation of Paraguay.
1: For the first (laughs) time ever, Paraguay gets theirs.
4: Any other things that uh, we forgot to mention? Going back to what you said, uh, Gabe, about the the imagery of everyone being a soldier, you also see the movie poster is Mm -hmm. like the flame with the gun being held above it. Very much that imagery of the only way to hold on to this land for the Jews is through the gun. And Uh any attempts to rise up against them will be met with, at this point, the American barrel of the gun in the hands of the israelis but
2: yeah that movie poster is itself a piece of propaganda Mm -hmm.
4: it's it's pretty crazy we know
2: of the holocaust as the great fire so it's the hand holding the gun coming out of the great fire it's the justification in a picture for the state of israel i think we'll close it off there thanks gabe and sam for joining us on this slog any plugs you'd like to make on the way out we have a link tree Linktree, it's like, it's like
1: Linktree slash Labor John or something, Gabe, right? Yeah, just Google
3: L-A-B-O-R-J-A-W-N. We're go. the only ones that have ever used that name.
2: <laughs> You'll find <So>. it. <laughs> Anything you'd like to plug on the way out, Evan?
4: I mean, as far as uh, future sort of history movie episodes, well, Lawrence of the Arabia, which was mentioned earlier, is, is one that was on that list that certainly would have a lot to discuss and you can follow me on all the internet places that left of the projector or left of the projector pod.
2: Telling me, I have to watch that movie again.
4: Well, maybe we won't do that one, but the next one that might come out could be Godzilla. So 1998 Godzilla. Oh God. We, we went through a long discussion <laughs> about that movie. That movie is a piece of propaganda that no one should uh, see.
2: That's basically the line in the rage against the machine song that they wrote for that movie yeah. is that you should do something better than watch Godzilla.
7: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. No shelter. That's, that's a good song. Awesome album. One of the best. The,
2: the whole soundtrack's actually pretty good. Yeah, decent. I never knew
1: I needed Puff Daddy and Jimmy Page together. It would be the original movie and then the 2014 reboot. Thank you for having us on your program and for uh, bringing us along. And uh, oh, we're not thanking you for having us watch this movie. If we're fortunate to ever come back on the program, we, we're going to do a 30-second commercial or something like that. <laughs>
2: You're asking for it, though. There are some amazing Hasbro commercials that show the, the IDF raiding a house and cleaning its windows. Oh, no. All right, Gabe, I'm going to be busy that day, but, but Gabe's free. <laughs> Gabe's free that
1: day.
3: I do want to say we have successfully finished this uh, one hour short of the actual hey. runtime of this movie.
2: Don't worry, I'll, I'll edit it out superfluous stuff. Unlike Otto Preminger, this is not meant to be an epic podcast.
4: <laughs> Could you do some long shots of us sitting and uh, looking over the land of Israel, please?
3: No commentary, no discussion, just slight hint of Hatikva in the background for like a solid five minutes.
2: And then so loud that you can't hear anything else being spoken for the next two minutes. I'm going to throw some
4: stuff into the river, too.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, on the way out. You can find us over at The Intervention on Instagram at Intervention Pod. And as always, go out there, get organized. Every little bit matters. Gaza needs your support. Palestine needs your support. Your local left organization needs your support. Good night.
4: Solidarity. Good night.
2: Adios, paisanos.